0: Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall and welcome to The Meaningful Life. What is the number one predictor of a long and happy marriage? It's not how much you love each other, nor is it having the same goals or shared interests. These all help, but what really counts is how well you deal with conflict. Can you settle your differences without ripping each other apart? or burying your differences, or one or both of you feeling controlled and downtrodden. Because one thing that is guaranteed in life, beyond death and taxes, is that when you live in close proximity, that you will fall out with each other. Arguing constructively needs skills, and the good news is skills can be taught. That's why I was pleased to get a review copy of Five Arguments All Couples Need to Have and Why the Washing Up Matters by Joanna Harrison. Joanna is a former divorce lawyer who has come over to my side of the divide and become a couples therapist. She's a senior clinician at the Tavistock Relationships and helps separating parents at Family Law in Partnership. So welcome, Joanna. What about your upbringing prepared you to write a book about arguments?
2: Oh, good question. So, mm, I think that... Growing up, I saw different models of relationships around me, shall we say. Some where there were perhaps too many arguments, some where there weren't any and people weren't necessarily working things out between them. So I think that's my real interest. That's how I got into working in relationships, is thinking about how do people have relationships that go better?
0: Were your parents separated or divorced? So you had one set here and one set there to see, or are we talking about your extended family?
2: Both I would say, yes, different marriages that weren't working, yeah oh
0: that <laughs> I come from an incredibly together parents, but they actually suppressed all arguments, so funnily enough, I became very interested in arguments, so right. you know people become therapists for reasons, yes, so what did you learn as a divorce lawyer that stood you in good stead to be a couple therapist?
2: I think I learned that. So working as a divorce lawyer, you, you're there on the front line of relationships that are breaking down. And you're dealing with all the consequences of it. But I was quite frustrated that there was no attention paid within the system to why the relationship had broken down or what was going on or how people felt about it. I think things are better now, actually, in the system, a lot better. But And, and so I, I learned that there was something missing. And I think that's how I did, as you say, go over to your side of things, was that I realized that I was interested in that bit of it. And I was with a barrister and a client one day. And the client was saying, but why isn't the court interested in what happened at the end of my marriage? And the barrister said, that really is of no interest to the court. And I sort of knew that's the bit I'm interested in too. And I'm working in the wrong bit of this process of relationships ending.
0: And do you think there's anything that your clients that you see who are working on their marriages need to know from couples that have actually reached the point of no return and are fighting in the divorce courts?
2: Yes, I think that the couples I see who have ended who are ending their relationship I mean they're doing it in different ways but a lot of them say if only we'd paid attention to this earlier I'm sure you hear that and a feeling that things have gone too far so I think that's one aspect of it that if only they'd felt that they'd got help earlier also I think that the legal system can take over and it can become adversarial and you can sort of get couples can get onto that path quite quickly And I think if couples are thinking about ending their relationship, I think there's a lot to be said for sort of taking time, not rushing in, not getting caught up in the process, unless there are safeguarding or risk issues that need urgent attention, to take some time to sort of end the emotional side of the marriage before diving into the legal ending of the relationship.
0: Because sometimes I think people imagine that divorce is going to actually press the reset button on the relationship and the problems will then get better because we're no longer together And my experience is probably they get worse because now instead of arguing in the kitchen together, where at least you can see each other and, um, you know, you can be a bit of repair as you go along, you're Mm -hmm. arguing over text messages in different kitchens. And it's actually the misunderstandings get bigger and bigger.
2: Yes, I agree with that. And through solicitor's letters sometimes too. And you don't have the shorthand that you can rely on when you're in a relationship the sort of goodwill, as you say, the miscommunications. And I think it can come as a surprise to parents who have separated that their relationship hasn't changed. They're still dealing with the difficulties only now over parenting and, you know, that can become quite fraught. So it's so important that couples who are separating can do some work on resolving the issues if they are going on as co-parents.
0: I suppose what I'm saying is whether you're going to stay together or separate, actually, these skills are just as valuable. So let's begin to look at the skills of arguing because this is gold dust that we've got here. If arguments are inevitable, and I think we're going to agree that they are inevitable, aren't they? Yes. I love your reframing of arguments. So you say arguments are not something to be avoided, but an invitation to grow. So tell me about that.
2: I think it's sort of what you think an argument is for. I think that if we see that rather than arguments being about who's right, the arguments are a way that couples flag up to each other the things that really matter to them they the sort of things that you argue about, the things you really care about. And so if a couple can see them in that way, rather than as a competition about who's right, and see arguments as really useful information, then there is that opportunity to grow and to learn from it because you, you're learning what really matters to your partner. And you're learning what matters to yourself, actually.
0: I think that's almost even more important. So actually think, why is this something that is so important to me? And it might not be instantly obvious because, you know, why is how clean the toilet is? Why why do I care so yes. passionately about that? And it's not a, if, well, I'm going to ask you, is it about the toilet?
2: It might be, you know, toilets can stir up strong feelings. But I think that's exactly it. You know, that's the question. That's this whole thing about why the washing up matters, is that the washing up or the toilet is annoying you. And that is an invitation to yourself to grow, to think, what is it? that is really mattering about it. And I think you can get locked into thinking it's just about the washing up and your partner can think, why are they going on about the washing up again? And there needs to be some unpacking and some understanding and some time spent to think, what actually is this about? And it may just be the toilet or the washing up, but it may be the fact that you know, you're really angry about something else that you don't know about.
0: Actually, I'm going to say it isn't going to be just about the toilet. It's never just about the toilet or just about the washing up. That has become something that's symbolic about you, that if they don't care about doing the washing up and they leave it to you, you feel that your partner actually doesn't care about your feelings. So it might actually start off as the washing up. But if you're still arguing about it, I had a couple that argued for three weeks about how to recycle everything in the freezer you know, should you get out the stuff from the very back, which is probably the less quality items, (laughs) or should you take it from the front? And it took us a very long time to work out exactly what this was about. But, you know, it was about respect, ultimately, that um, one partner had bought the freezer and felt that the freezer shouldn't be deteriorating because there's a whole load of old rubbish in the back of it. I mean... It's never about just the washing up. So don't say, oh, we just argue about little things.
2: No, I mean, this is the richness of our work to be able to spend weeks talking about this freezer issue. It's so important. And, you know, I really think pretty much every couple I work with has, this is why I chose the washing up, is that it does come up. It comes up somehow. Some of this everyday stuff comes up and we take time to think about it and we learn something from thinking about it. And that I find, the everyday stuff, I find to be the most interesting bit of all, really.
0: And if washing up is a subject between the two of you, I suggest you listen to my podcast with Matthew Frey, who wrote the very famous blog post, My Wife Divorced Me Because I Left My Glass in the Sink, rather than putting it in the washing up machine. And he has actually got a whole book out of this topic and listen to the podcast because it is so important. It's about respect and so you can see we've gone from the washing up to something that's incredibly central. And if, you're, if you feel your partner doesn't respect them, then you can't trust them. No. And um, once you've lost respect and trust, you are heading towards the divorce courts. So that's a time when you really need to start paying attention.
2: Yes. And, and it may hit on a really old nerve about not being respected or cared for. And that really needs understanding too. So there are different layers that it can be thought about. As I say, it's a rich topic.
0: So do we actually need to have these arguments? I've got lots of clients that say, can't we just discuss them reasonably? Now, what would you answer to that?
2: Maybe we start to try and discuss them reasonably, and then they turn into arguments. And I hope, you know, I I suppose I hope that reading my book will give a more constructive way of having having arguments, seeing arguments as things that need to be navigated and being able to have constructive conversations about them. So if if I go back to what I was saying earlier, that you see arguments as opportunities to learn about yourself and your partner, the really important thing to do in an argument is not to defend yourself, it's to try and listen to what is being said. And I think actually, if there's some thinking about that, that takes the heat out of an argument because then it is two people having more of a discussion. And so it's that shift from an opportunity to learn rather than needing to defend yourself.
0: And what I would say to Can You Just Have a Reasonable Discussion is that sometimes to have a reasonable discussion, you push down your feelings about something. And if you push down your feelings about the things that you don't like about your partner, or you push down your own feelings like sort of anger and disappointment, we can't choose which of our feelings we're going to push down. We can't say, I'm going to have the joy and the pleasure and the love, and I'm going to push down the anger, the bitterness and the frustration what happens, we end up pushing down all of our feelings. And then we get into the situation, which actually my famous book is about called, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Mm -hmm. So you've sort of pushed all the differences down until you've become flatmates. And, you know, flatmates is quite a nice thing to be, but there's actually no passion in your relationship. And the best way to get love back is not to do more loving things, but to actually argue more, because yeah. then you can actually get up to the surface of what is not being said, and lots of times there are important things that are not being said.
2: Yes, well, and, and there's an intimacy. We talk about the intimacy of getting to those different feelings of seeing the range of those feelings, as you say, rather than being pushed down or or being expressed somewhere else. You know that they end up in sort of seething resentment or in an affair, or or problem with alcohol, you know, going somewhere else. So there is an intimacy that comes from knowing about what each other cares about. You know, I talk a lot about repair and how important that is, that that maybe you do have an argument and it's not reasonable and it doesn't turn into a nice discussion where you're listening to each other. But it's the after bit where you you sit and reflect on it, which is a lot of what we do in therapy, that, that brings an intimacy of its own. So
0: give me some suggestions about how to repair after an argument.
2: So I think it's about choosing a time when things do feel a bit calmer. And I suppose what we do in in the therapy setting is sort of look at the relationship that has had the argument. And for some couples, it'll be really difficult to do that. But I think at home, couples can say, can we talk about what happened between us? Trying to look at it from the outside. You know, what do you think was going on there? We both seemed so... Cross about it. So, sort of looking at it tentatively from the outside, I think that's a bit of a muscle that grows. That the more that couples get into the habit of doing it, the easier it is to get into it. I think it can feel really difficult when it's not something that you do, but building up confidence that you can sort of, you know, what was going on for you then? What do you, you know, what, what, what do you think you were so? cross about when you were having a go at me about the washing up? Was there anything I was missing? I'd Being curious. I mean, being curious is always helpful.
0: And I would say you can sometimes actually re- sort of mend the argument as you're going along, a bit of running repair. Things like, oh, you made a really good point there because, you know, in all of the argument, your partner will make some good points. You know, they're not all going to be bad. And actually saying that as you're going along, you know, nodding with them and nodding a little bit, you know, yes, yes. Sometimes just actually summarising a bit. So you're really angry because when I left my glass beside the sink, it reminded you of what your father used to do and your mother was a martyr and you don't want to do that. Yep. Okay. So those sort of little things help do a running repair as the argument goes along. You don't have to agree with everything they say, no. but just showing that, yeah, you know, we're two people who love each other and you make reasonable points along the way of this argument is a good way of doing a running repair. Obviously, if, if the whole thing has gone out of control, then do the repair afterwards. Yes. But just saying, I'm sorry, and can we forget it, isn't a repair. That's a pushing it away. So and I think it's really important to understand the difference between letting it drop and doing a repair.
2: Yes, coming back to it. I I completely agree and I I like that image. And yeah, I think that it's underestimated the importance of just showing that you've you've heard the thing that your partner has just said to you and that you've registered it. I think when you know, people get in a panic if someone's cross with them and they're sort of in a panic in defence mode, they don't they're not processing or listening, but show sort of engaging with the saying, yes, I have heard what you've just said. Yeah, okay, I hear what you're saying. That kind of brings it back.
0: Nine times out of 10, you have registered that they've made a a good point. It's just you haven't actually taken it from your brain through your mouth. Another good one is, yeah, we both want the best for the children, if you're having an argument about the children you know we both think it's important that they get to school on time you know so yeah. that you, you you're only fighting about you know how you get them to school on time rather than it could be imagined that uh, actually one person doesn't care and thinks yeah. it's okay for them to be 10 15 minutes late or whatever
2: yeah, it is hard to see that. I mean, I think that is some, you know, that's what sometimes, you know, having a therapist there who can, who can observe that for both of them is, is sometimes what brings it back, isn't it? That, you know, it's clear that you both care about this. So That's a function that a couple have got to find in themselves, whether with help or without.
0: So you've called your book five arguments all couples need to have yes. and you know I have to agree with you that these are all arguments that couples need to have there we are a little bit of a little bit of agreement as we go along in this discussion Yes okay not that I think we need a running repair so <laughs> let's have the first of these uh, things that we need to talk about or argue about and this one's possibly the most fundamental how yeah, we communicate you. with each other
2: Yes That's why it's first. I mean, it sort of is the foundation for all the other chapters. I think that we do have to learn how to communicate with each other for all the things we've been talking about. But I think we have to understand that it's not a smooth process that's not going to happen overnight in a relationship. And, you know, this sort of growth mindset, learning from mistakes. If we we see that we're going to have arguments, we're going to get it wrong with each other about communication. But in doing so, we have an opportunity to learn how to do it better. So, you know, with this kind of repair job that we're talking about, we get it wrong and then we learn and then we have another go.
0: So you call this chapter, You Never Listen to Me. Yes. Now, if your partner says you never listen to me, the natural response is to say, oh, yes, I do. And then we go round in a circle. What might be another way of if your partner says you never listen to me to respond to it? (laughs)
2: <laughs> to be curious, to think about what do you, okay, that sounds really important. I need to understand more. I mean, also, you know, if, if some of the ideas in that first chapter, you know, the partner might frame it better if instead of saying, you never listen to me, they say, I really don't feel heard in this relationship rather than making it a you accusation. It's about the feeling that they're having. I'm not feeling listened to.
0: That's a really good one. The minute you say you, your partner is immediately, you know, you can hear the way I say you, you're going to immediately, you're on the defensive, aren't you? Yes. What other tips would you give on how to communicate better with each other?
2: So timing is everything, I think. Really paying attention to when you get into something. That's obviously important if you have children and you're getting into a difficult conversation. But Just because it's good to talk about what you're feeling about in the relationship and not pushing down feelings, as we were saying, doesn't mean that the minute your partner walks in is the moment to do that from their long day. Or at the end of the day, if one of you finds it difficult to sleep after a difficult conversation, or if you have little children and you're, you've had a really bad night and you feel furious with the world, is that the moment to get into something with each other? So I just really think that is so important.
0: And if you're the person that generally feels it's not the right time to have the argument, what I have to say to you is please, please, please don't just keep putting that conversation off because if your partner feels it's going to go, you know, on the list of never, ever, then they're just going to go right at the moment they feel it. If they know that you truly do say, We're going to talk about this this evening, yeah. and when you come back and say, Yep, yeah, there was something this morning that we needed to talk about, you know, I'm listening, then they will not talk about it in the morning. But yeah. if you think, Oh, thank goodness, a bit of peace and quiet this evening, and, you know, things seem to be okay, and I'm going to avoid, well, I'm sorry, it just pops up worse you know, later on in the evening, because your partner is angry for you twice over, not just what you didn't do in the morning, but the fact that you've actually pushed this further away now. So both of you have got to work on this. It's not just one person, is it?
2: No, I completely agree with that. You know, it's not just not having a conversation that evening. You know, I see people who... I've been trying to have that conversation for years and they've just given up trying to talk about it. You know, couples, lots of couples in therapy say what really is helpful is the knowing that we've got this one hour of our week where we are going to tend to our relationship and we're going, it's a sort of neutral time and we can save things up. They build up confidence and trust that they can talk about things in that time. And often when people finish therapy, they say, we're going to try and make a time And I think that can be quite helpful. They They say say that. I don't
0: know how. Well, from knowing couples, I mean, one of the joys is people come back, you know, that several years later they've got other stuff that needs to be done and they come back. And they always say, We went away saying we would meet still, you know, we came on Wednesday evening, we'd still make Wednesday evening our discussion evening. And how many of them do it?
2: But they have the idea of it. At least they have the thought of it and an idea that it, it is good to make time for these things. And, you know, it's so busy. Life is so busy, but it is really important.
0: So what would you say to somebody who's listening to this and they're in the category of, you know, I've spent five years trying to have this conversation and I've sort of given up hope well, not 100% given up hope because they're listening to this podcast, but you know they're yeah. getting into that territory. How can they re-approach their partner in a way that might get some results?
2: You know, I see this. Sometimes you have a sense that someone feels so desperate. They feel so desperate inside, but they still haven't really conveyed it. You know, there does have to be a moment where they say, "This, this really... I'm really desperate here I'm really desperate to have this conversation and and maybe we need to get help to do that but we can't go on like this and if there is a refusal to engage with that that's really difficult that you know that I suppose that's the sort of spirit of my book is and I talk about this one chapter about you know ending a relationship people have really tried to make the time and and find a way but there does come a point when people feel the work involved is too much to try and have that conversation.
0: Well, my tip would be to Mm -hmm. get out a journal and write it all down, what you want to say, and then sort of process it a little bit. Because sometimes I think what happens when you are or heading towards desperate is it all comes pouring out point after point after point, one -hmm. thing going over the other one. And you're not particularly clear about what it is the issue. Your partner is overwhelmed and the conversation collapses. But actually, if you can Boil it down to, you know, two or three things that are really important to you, and you've really thought them through, and you know that's what you're going to say, you can probably come across it in a much calmer kind of way. You know, I'm actually reaching a really difficult point where I'm wondering about the future of our relationship. Mm. And it's for two reasons. The first one is this. And the second one is that, and I'm wondering how you're feeling about our relationship, and I think your partner will be able to cope and process that, but you need to have a calmness that comes with knowing exactly what it is. Let's move to the second thing, which is how we deal with each other's families. yeah, so tell me about that.
2: Yes, so Al, as say, is also known as your mother drives me crazy," which is the sort of stereotypical picture. But I think it stands for so much. There are different ways in which we can think about this round. So there is the concrete, oh, it's really difficult being with your family. You know, they do things differently or they, you know, I don't feel comfortable with them. But then I think that speaks at a deeper level to even if we grew up on the same street, same house, the atmosphere of our families, every family is unique. And this inevitable reality of being in a relationship with someone who does things differently you know who's grown up in a family culture that is different I was talking to someone this week and we were sharing in the fact that we come from families who open the curtains in the morning and close them at night it's just part of life and our partners do not <laughs> and- you know these are just you don't even think about it but it's sort of it's in your bones really and and you have to live with these aspects of your partner or or attitudes to mess or you know what might be clean in one house might be deemed not clean in another house so and there's such a richness you know that's part of being in a relationship you know making your own way in your own family ways but you know you can drive each other crazy in that area
0: and it's not just your partner's family you have to deal with you have to deal with your own stuff oh, as yes. well that yes. the emotional inheritance that you're bringing here and so you know unwittingly you might be well you know i'm turning fastly into my father it's really quite <laughs> embarrassing but um um and i hate it so and if my partner really wants to get me riled the message is you're acting like your father yeah
2: yeah there's nothing like that comment Yeah. You know, that's the deepest layer of this argument is sort of what we bring into the relationships, our deepest longings, the the experiences we've had in our own families that, that we bring to our couple relationships in the hope that they will be dealt with in some way. And our partners probably won't fulfill, you know, repair the issues from our own families. They may go some way to it, but, you know, I think you have to be clear about what belongs where. So there's a lot of sorting out to do in this this sort of soup of our families that we all swim around in.
0: And sometimes, although you might hate your partner for it, that the mirror they hold up that makes you have to look at your own stuff from your own family... Is something really ultimately to be grateful for, even though it might drive you crazy.
2: Yes. Yes. That's it, isn't it? And that's what relationships can do, that they can help. That's, you know, again, this is an invitation to grow, that you're hearing something you really don't want to hear, but your partner is reflecting it to you. And that is the opportunity to grow from it if you can hear it.
0: So, the third area of the five arguments all couples need to have is how do we deal with sharing the jobs that need doing? Yeah. And people will not believe how much of the time in a marital therapy office is discussed as using on this particular topic.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I completely agree. I mean, you know, we're in this space together in a relationship and there's work to do and it has to be shared out. And I think it ties in with the previous theme. There are different ideas about what the work involved is. So, you you know, let's say keeping the house tidy is a job that needs doing. There will be different ideas about how much work is involved with that. You know, and you may settle on a division of labour, then life comes along and changes things. And then I think it's always being renegotiated. But One thing I see again and again and again is where there are feelings about this. This is an area that breeds resentment, I think, like no other. I don't know if that's your experience, but, you know, if someone feels that they're doing more work or that they're not being acknowledged for what they do, it's pretty toxic.
0: And I think the added complexity of this is there's what I call unquantifiable labour as well. So, for example, many women complain to me that their husband is not aware of the amount of planning and emotional space it takes up, you know, getting children from A to B and uh, making certain they have D, E and F with them and sorting out what you're going to do when neither of you are going to be available to look after them and which friend is going to take them up this is sort of in the brain there's all of these sort of movable pieces going along and of course the person who's not doing this cannot actually see this labor no and there are things like you know doing a 1 hour commute because the family is going to be better off living somewhere where there's a garden but you've actually yep. got to do the the 1 hour commute each day and although your partner knows it it sort of becomes invisible yeah so how do you deal with this issue, not just of the things we can see, like the washing up, yeah. but the unquantifiable and unseeable things?
2: I think this is such an important point you made. It's such an important area. And I tried in my book to make a list of these things that I've heard about that don't get enough airtime.
0: So let's go through that list. What do you see?
2: Oh, things like things like making sure there's toilet paper. Or the one you talk about dealing with what needs to go into school, packing school bags, folding, washing, sorting, washing, filling up the car with petrol, making sure that the light bulbs, you know, and then the more subtle ones, the worrying about things. And then there's the social planning, birthday parties, keeping in touch, making communities, speaking at school gate. I mean, the list goes on and on, but things that don't often get quantified or seen. And I think that what needs to happen people know the jobs they're doing that aren't being seen. And that's where the resentment grows that there needs to a couple need to think of having a sort of HR department within their relationship or a sort of function that they have where things can be talked about. Again, it's a bit of a muscle of of building up a conversation about what's been done, being grateful to each other for what is being done and, and really actively working on that gratitude, I think, to bring these things more into the light.
0: And the next one is how we manage distance between us. What do you mean by distance between us?
2: So I think there are two sides of this. The, the one is sort of why are you always on your phone and not available to me, and the other one is ah, give me some space. You're 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 stifling me. And we've all got our different comfort levels and different meanings to people being close or far from us, and they may be different at different times. And it, it can feel very confusing in a relationship to. Be with someone who has different ideas about that. So again, it's back to communication, getting to know each other better on what sort of works, on a sort of distance regulation that works and not just assuming that you can get it right. I think that, you know, separations can stir up a lot of feelings. I think there's a real, you're probably familiar, you know, the doorstep, the the sort of one person coming back and that that can be a moment of conflict. I think it's it's tuning into these differences with each other that can help in this area.
0: Really. Um, it really is worth spending time talking about the comings and goings, particularly the comings, because, you know, if you get those wrong, you're setting yourself up for a whole evening of unpleasantness. But if actually yeah. you make certain that the person who arrives, comes and says, hello, darling. And the person who's actually in the house at the time actually looks up from what they're doing. Because there's nothing worse in this world than arriving back home, looking forward to seeing your beloved. And uh, they're not, you know, they probably are pleased to see you, but they don't actually register it in any way. And, And also, you know, don't just leave, say goodbye. I mean, it sounds terribly simple, but it is so important.
2: It's so important. And planning for goodbyes. You know, there's there's a little bit of care that can go into this that, you know, what, what do you need here? What works? Or if one of you is going away, what's going to work? Rather than falling into it and, and it's sort of not working because you haven't made time to speak to each other, actually doing a bit of planning. How are you going to feel about me being away?
0: And how can I help when I'm away in the sense of make you feel connected to me? You know, am I touching base often enough? Are you showing interest in what I'm doing when I'm away? You know, is it a case of out of sight, out of mind? Often these ones are easier to talk about when you're not in the middle of of a row.
2: Yeah, all of these things are. But the row will show the feelings about them. You know, if you keep having this row when one of you gets home, you just don't want to be doing that every day. You, you need to have a think about what, what do we both need here? Okay, I do need 10 minutes on my own when I come in. It's nothing personal. It's just that I've just been doing that nasty commute you were talking about and give me 10 minutes, I'll be on much better form.
0: So the fifth topic is sex. Nobody wants to talk about sex.
2: No, no, nobody wants to have an argument about sex. You know, it's a bit different from the others. Because it's the one that people, I think, don't argue about and avoid because it's so delicate and so sensitive to talk about bodies and each other's bodies. But it is the one that over time, you know, people bring it into the consulting room and and sometimes it's, you know, it's too late to have the conversation. I think it's really important. It needs just as much attention as the others, even though it's difficult. So top tip for talking about sex then? I think that's part of what I've wanted to do with the book is to normalise that these are conversations that it's okay to have. You know, can we take some time to think about what isn't working and to go really gently on it?
0: Have you heard of positive inquiry? Because I think that is really good for talking about sex.
2: No, I haven't, but I'm going to write it down. Let let me
0: tell you about positive inquiry. So generally, if there's a problem, we list all the things that we don't like. So, you know, you rush sex, for example, or you never want it. And we're yeah. we're putting down all of the things that aren't working, which is generally how we start to make things better. Yeah. The problem is immediately we're in an argument and defensiveness and creativity yeah. has gone out the window. With positive inquiry, you talk about what is working or if nothing's working at the moment, what used to work. So do you remember what it was like when we first met and we had sex, and actually look together at what actually made the sex so good at that point, which is, you know, we had plenty of time, we didn't have children, whatever it is, you know, so, so some bits, you know, you can't just Well, I mean, you could send the children off to their grandparents the weekend, but the bit of it that you remember is that we made time for each other. And, you know, even if you have got children, I promise you, you can make time for each other if you wish to.
2: And made an effort for each
0: other. Exactly. You know, you dressed up, that uh, you took your time. And so actually... Putting aside time for it is important. So you talk about what actually worked and you find out, you know, what actually worked. You then start thinking about how would we like sex to be now? Because that's how it used to work in the past. How it works today might be different because we're different people, you know, it's 20 years have passed. So what's your dream of how sex is going to be now? Mm. And I share my dream and you share your dream and we get more ideas. And then you come to the next positive part, which is you design how you could actually deliver this material. And if something comes up like, you know, a negative, you write it down and say, well, we'll talk about that at another time. So it's acknowledged, but we don't get derailed and go into negative stuff and start defending. So once again, you remember what was good, what worked. It might be still stuff today works. You know, there might have been that fabulous time when you had great sex when you were on holiday. You know, what about that was so delicious? dream about how you'd like it. And then you can begin to design how you can put some of those things into your life today. And there's no negativity in it. And hopefully you're going to be kind and generous to each other.
2: Yeah. I think there's a real intimacy that can come from that kind of conversation of of its own, really. You know, that that having that conversation is connecting and, you know, I think there are painful things to acknowledge, too, in a conversation like that, you know, and, and looking back to a sex life 20 years ago, the, the beginning of your relationship when you're older and bodies have changed, you know, there, there's there's mourning that needs to be done between a couple to maintain and, and develop a sex life. But there's intimacy in that, too. So I anyway, I like I like how you put it.
0: Thank you. It's all about curious questions. And I yeah. think that that's one of the messages we want to leave people with. And it's something that comes mm-hmm. across a lot in your book. What do you mean by curious questions?
2: Genuinely being interested, you know, sort of putting aside your ideas or your thoughts about what should happen or, and, and just, you know, what do you need? What is that like? My husband sent me a message the other day saying, how would you like to spend a day? And I thought, my God, that's such such a nice question to be asked. It wasn't necessarily possible to spend it the way I had, you know, wanted to, but it was nice to be asked. You know, I just think these very open questions about what do you need, I think can bring, you know, give someone the opportunity to then be heard.
0: That wonderful question, why? Yeah. I mean, they often start with open questions, who, yeah. why, what, when. And as my history teacher always used to say, what are the consequences? This is how we were supposed to answer every question in history. He managed to get this drummed into my brain. So I'm always thinking who, why, what, when, and what were the consequences. Right. But these are, <laughs> yeah. these are great things to have in your brain because it generates lots of curious questions. I spent a whole a whole lifetime doing curious questions. If you can get this as a skill that you're curious Rather than thinking you know what your partner's going to say. And you yeah. might. But if you ask a genuinely curious question, why is this so important to you, you will learn something.
2: Yes. And I think there's work to be done on yourself in order to be curious. You know, if you're very preoccupied with your own difficulties or your own issues, it's difficult to get into a curious frame of mind. You know, you know, so that's part of it too, but
1: The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits.
0: Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter, because I'd love for the Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe there is lots of relationship advice and all sorts of thoughts about building a meaningful life. So we've been looking at the zombie marriage in it. We've been looking at the subject of closure. Can you really get closure on something or is this just a fantasy we have? These are some of the topics that we cover. And if you'd like to find out more, you can find out everything at the Meaningful Life. .substack.com, so, please do sign up. Details will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to participate in the program and send us a letter, uh, a dilemma that um, I can discuss with some of my experts, you can go to www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. You'll find right at the very bottom details of how to write in. And I have a very interesting one for you, Joanna. My wife sees the world compared to me in negative terms. It may seem trivial, but she uses adjectives that are three to four times stronger and more negative than I would to describe something. Nothing is ever right or good enough. Too hot, too cold, too wet, too dry. And the energy that goes into countering these unchangeable things is like running uphill with somebody hanging onto one leg shouting out reasons why you should not be doing this. My issue is that I cannot feel warm or attractive to a person who is as negative, aggressive and controlling as my wife has become. I admit I have told her that in the past I did not see her anger as the anguish she has now explained it was, constant unstated fear that I would leave her with a small child. I had no idea she thought this. To me it was a petulant lack of self-control and almost deliberate removal of joy from our joint environment. I didn't handle it well, but I'm not sure I could have done better even if I had seen it differently. We have massive rows several times a week. They always start with something incredibly petty, and in her mind are due to my deliberate provocation. In my view, I've simply stated a justified difference of view, or quietly asserted my competence, or made a very normal human error. They consist of her screaming at me for four or five hours or more, repeating all her pain from the past. No attempt to console her makes any difference. She claims that the tone is not right and rejects any approach of any kind until the storm is spent. My problem is this. How do I make one last desperate attempt to talk about this with somebody who perceives themselves as so wronged? I need her at the very least to acknowledge that I have a right to feelings about and a response to her behaviours. Without that, I can only move in one direction, out. So. Joanna.
2: This sounds like a couple in real distress, actually. You know, roused that last four or five hours, screaming. You know, he's in distress, and I'm in no doubt that if if his wife were describing the picture, that she probably would be in equal distress. It doesn't sound, you know, and there's a reference to a child. And I think my first thought is concern of what the climate at home is like for their small child that may not be the first thing to say because I think that can be difficult for parents to take on. But I think this is a couple who need professional help, actually. It feels like there is something that isn't being heard, that isn't being processed within the relationship, and that in order for that to happen, they need the support from outside to do it.
0: Because stepping back, we've got somebody who believes that something isn't being taken seriously Mm -hmm. and is speaking out and to an extent acting out because, you know, four or five hours of screaming is acting out rather than communicating. And we've got somebody who says, you know, let's not look at things. Let's actually enjoy some life as well. Both of these are actually totally valid. You know, we need to bring things up, but we need to have some sense of proportion and the ability to contain So both of these skills are needed. We need problems brought up and we need them contained so they don't, you know, run like a wildfire all the way through our relationship. And it's back to your business of distance and roles, because how do we balance those two things out? We actually need both of these things. But at the moment, one person's holding the bringing things up and the other person's holding the containment. And somehow they need each other's skills together to find a way in the middle where things come up but they're also contained as well, so that they're not overwhelmed as they are at the moment. And I wonder if it would help you to actually see that although it's not actually working for either of you, the other person has got some skills that could be useful in the relationship.
2: Yes, and that's a really good point, actually, the different things that they're holding. And and, and what he's very much saying is it's all her. (laughs) So I'm really interested to know what His part in is in it. He feels very invested in countering everything. He does seem stuck in a who's right, actually. I think what I'm saying is when you only hear one side of it, it's difficult to look at the whole system, isn't it? And as you say, there are these different roles that they're taking up. So I think that's my instinct is, is to sort of see what is going on in the relationship, try to understand who's bringing what. There is a sense that there's some possibility to reflect between them. They've had this conversation where she's revealed something very vulnerable about her fears about being left with a small child. And he he seems to have taken that on board, but then sees it as petulant. And, you know, that feels like it needs more understanding, more processing between them. But I think it's quite hopeful that it's been noted that there's a a capacity to think that might be relevant.
0: Mm, I love that. My other piece of advice would be you want to make one last attempt to talk. And that Mm. is absolutely brilliant. But what is actually concerning me is you're going into that one last attempt to talk with a precondition that unless the other person sees A, B, C, in this case, that you have a right to your feelings, which, you know, you do. And I agree 100%. But if you actually go into talks, With a precondition, the talks nearly always collapse. You sort of need to go into talks. Maybe there might be talks about talks, but if you have too many preconditions, think of this as sort of uh, the Northern Ireland peace talks. You know, if they'd gone in and they said, you know, before we start talking, you have to do A and B, they would have just. Continued staring at each other. So, if it is a real, genuine one last attempt to try and talk to each other, mm-hmm. then you shouldn't really have preconditions when the talks start. As you go along, you can say, This is something that I really need and will be really helpful to me. That's mm-hmm. very different from saying, You know, I'm prepared to give our relationship one last chance as long as you do A. And I get lots of couples arrive in my room saying that, and none of them ever stay for counselling because the other person just bounces off the roof when they hear the precondition. And then we can't move forward because we're immediately stuck before we even start. So please remove the precondition.
2: Yes. And I think that that part of that, I think that's a really helpful way of putting it. It's also the, the being able to look at it as their relationship from the outside that, The relationship is struggling we're struggling you don't have to get into you I need you to do this and therefore I need you to do that we're really struggling we need to change something and and maybe we need help to do that and I think also you know we have a child and we're really struggling and, and what's it you know can they think about the impact of their struggle on their child?
0: Yeah, I think the words we and I uh, need to come into this conversation Mm. all the time. And in fact, if I was you in this particular thing, I would ban from my lips the word you because Mm. bearing in mind the history, any sentence starting you will immediately sound like it's coming as a criticism. Yeah, and we'll just get Um, into it. you do need help because you are in drinking in Last Chance Saloon and it's very mm. difficult to get out of Last Chance Saloon on your own. And there's yeah. some really attractive barmaids there like um, me and Joanna that will, uh, will listen to you and get the two of you talking. We won't be serving any alcohol, but no. uh, we will give you a glass of water so you won't be entirely yeah. dry. So thank you very much for being my witness today on The Meaningful Life. We now need to ask you, what makes your life meaningful?
2: Well, it is relationships, both personally and professionally. That is what really does matter to me and connecting with people. And I think, you know, that professionally, you know, it it means a lot to be able to work with couples and to be able to help them have their relationships work better and personally that means a lot to me too but you know and it's 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 family it's friends it's community it's being connected and sharing in things and and with nature you know relationships all around really
0: so unfortunately, this is where the conversation ends, but it doesn't if you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life, because if you're a supporter, this conversation continues. You'll find out the three things that Joanna knows deep down to be true. And um, I'm going to be pulling up some ideas from her book. She has a whole section where under each of the particular argument topics, she has some ideas of what seems to work for other couples and i've pulled out the ones that i think are really powerful i'm going to share my best piece of advice and i'm going to ask for her best piece of advice so if you want to hear all of that conversation if you're an apple listener you can uh, subscribe directly through apple the same if you are on spotify if you're listening on other systems you can uh, go and become a Patreon supporter. If you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, you'll find all the details. And here they come again.
1: You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts making editing and distributing the meaningful life comes with substantial costs and we'd like to ask for your help visit our website andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program send in a letter to be discussed by andrew and his guests and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Meaningful Life with me, Andrew G. Marshall. And it's quite a significant episode because we have now recorded 99 episodes. And next week, we have a very special one, our 100th episode. It's a great achievement to have reached this landmark, and I would like to thank everybody who's helped make it possible. Most podcasts really only get through to a handful of episodes. We've not only made it to 99 and 100 is coming next week but we've also been nominated for a British Podcast Award, and we were nominated in Best Sex and Relationships podcast. I couldn't have done it without my team and the people who've been supporting me through Patreon or subscribers directly with Apple. It costs to actually make this episode. I put a lot of time and energy into it myself, which i don't charge myself, but obviously preparing and finding the guests takes time but it costs me because I have uh, somebody who is helping with editing, social media and processing. And we think that these kind of things are free and they're not, they cost me. And this is where I would like you to possibly help me become a supporter on Patreon or subscribe directly to Apple. And you can help this podcast grow to 150, 200 episodes. And I'm not just asking it for nothing. I'm providing bonus material. In the end of every episode, there are the three things that my guests know to be true. And we talk and unwind together after the episode. And generally we recover something special just for people who are listening to the bonus material. So it's really valuable material and is really an intrinsic part of the programme. And I'd love you to hear it as well. I'd love you to help support me. And I'd love you to listen to our 100th episode next week. I've got a very special guest lined up. If you'd like to help us, go to www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, and you'll find how to become a Patreon supporter. Or if you listen on Apple, you can subscribe directly. So once again, look forward to a very special edition with a special guest for you. Next week, we've made it to a 100. Hurrah!